This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Like I said, we're in session number five. It's entitled Discipline. It's part of our Training Center Church uh, seminar session here, seminar series. But before we get into any study at all, we, of course, want to start with a word of prayer. So please, if you would, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that we have it at all and that we can spend it together. And right now in this room, Lord, we would ask that you would teach us things we need to know so that we can work for you the way you want us to. So bless us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to go pretty strictly to the script here, but I'd like you to follow along, and you can kind of see an idea that's developing here. Um, we, we mentioned the, the Bible's great commission that Christ gave in Matthew chapter 28. It says, go and make disciples. The opening lines of the great book, Acts of the Apostles, says, the church was organized for service as missionaries to carry the gospel to the world. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a mission statement that says we're going to go make disciples by giving the everlasting gospel in the context of the three angels' messages. And it includes the line, discipling them. And I mentioned in a previous seminar that that, that, that little word, discipling, kind of bugs me. <laughs> because it's not an actual word. It's a made-up term, I believe, to sound nicer than the real word, which is discipline. Right? Discipling is not a thing. The root word of disciple, the process by which you become a disciple, is a process called discipline. Okay? Now, popular as it may be today, the word disciple is a noun. It's a thing that you are. It's not a verb. The true discipleship requires discipline. Philippians chapter 2. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Philippi. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So clearly he has set up, he's preached the message, they've been obedient, but now he's planning to leave, or he has already left, but he says to do what? Work out your own salvation. Well, I thought it was just something you received, you accepted, it's a transaction, and you got it. What's this working out business? After the preacher leaves? After I heard the message? You mean there's more to do than just simply say, I've gone through the Bible studies, I've listened to the sermons, I've accepted, I came down front. I've... Paul says, yes, now that I'm gone, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, to be clear, he's not saying these are your works that do apart from Christ. He's saying Christ now dwells in you, but allow him to do his work, and you must continue this growth process. It's laborious. It's, it's time commitment. It's, it's work. Now that the message has been preached, work out your own salvation. Discipline. Christian service, page 58. One sentence that should give us pause. It is evident. This was written, I believe, in 1902. So just over 100 years ago, Mrs. White was able to look at the condition of the remnant people, the Seventh Adventist Church, and she was able to look and say this, it is evident. Notice she didn't say, I was shown. 
This is not a thing that the Lord had to reveal to you on the surface you couldn't see. Apparently, she said, just look around. You can see it for yourself. It's clear. It is evident that all the sermons preached have not developed a large class of self-denying workers. We've preached sermon after sermon, crusade after crusade, campaign after campaign, and what do we have at the end of it? We have a whole lot of members, but where are the missionaries? Where are the workers? We've got a lot of watchers, but where are the workers? It is obvious that the message has been preached, it's been accepted, and people have joined, but where are the workers? And we've noticed in the cycle of evangelism, discipleship ministry, well, we'll get to it. In the cycle of evangelism, we talked about preparing the soil and then sowing the seed and then cultivating with Bible studies, guiding new people to the word. And at harvest time, perhaps in that own home environment or at a public campaign, someone makes an appeal, a commitment to get baptized and join God's remnant church. And we think, aha, the cycle is complete. No, it's not. There's one more step, preservation. What do you do with the crop that's harvested? What do you do with it? What's the purpose of even having a crop? You gotta do something with the grain. You gotta put that fruit to use. You gotta do something with it. Preservation, after the harvest. That's what this particular session is about, is looking at that preservation, that last phase of the cycle. Let's say that you have done all of the things. You mingled the people and met their needs and won their confidence and then you sowed the seed of the word of God into their lives through either literature or media or your own gospel presentation out of your own mouth, which give that a shot sometime. Don't just let John Bradshaw do the work for you. You do it. Nothing against Ron Bradshaw. He's a good man. Then you have cultivated. They were interested in Bible study. They accepted what you said in this. Would you like to learn more? And you go through the series of Bible studies. They come to the evangelistic campaign. They give their heart to the Lord. Then they get baptized and you're there smiling. Now what? In a lot of times, we put $10,000 on this end of the cycle. We put 10,000 hours into this end of the cycle. We put all our creativity, all our energies, all our attention in getting them to hit the thing, to walk them through the thing and get them to make that decision for Christ. And then the next Sabbath, after the chairs are folded up, the banners have come down, Now what? Now what? And then we're shocked when a year later, where were those nine decisions for baptism? We got one of them left. It was a great harvest. Collected all, then we just let it sit on the shelf and rot. Which is where it brings in discipleship ministry. Guiding someone through application of the theory that they've heard. The doctrine, the Bible discourses, all of those sermons that have been preached, how do we now integrate that into the life so that you not only be on the books, but you'll be in person, and beyond that, you'll be a worker for Christ going to sow your own seed and start the cycle all over again. How do we do that? Discipline. Discipleship ministry involves more than publicly preaching or even personally teaching God's word to others. At its very core, true discipleship requires personal mentoring. In the same way they needed to come to Christ through someone leading them step by step through the word, now they need to see the application of that in the same way on the other end. 
Right, you gave me the theory over here, now help me learn it in practice over here. Help me integrate into this new lifestyle. This was a theme of the Apostle Paul. Interestingly enough, you would assume he just says, everyone just follow Jesus. He didn't exactly say that. I know it sounds a little heretical, but watch how he says follow Jesus. Let's say it this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, he makes this statement, imitate who? Me. As I imitate Christ. Do you catch that? He should just say, just look at Jesus and do whatever he does. But I know this is very nuts and bolts, but Jesus isn't here in a physical body anymore. We have the testimony of what his life was like here. We know where he is now, praise the Lord, in the heavenly sanctuary, soon to come again as a king. But what does Christianity look like if I can't follow Jesus around like his disciples did? Paul says, I tell you what, why don't you follow me around and I'll help you see Jesus more clearly in what it looks like to be his disciple. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Is that making sense? Watch this now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 1, starting with verse 5. And again, I always look this up in my Bible just to make sure it's there and I didn't have a typo or something like that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 5. Man, I got to get good at this. For our gospel, he tells the Thessalonians, did not come to you in word only. Do you catch that? How much of our Seventh-day Adventist message comes to people in word only? Paul says, that's not how I did it. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. Why were they the type of men that they were? Well, hopefully it's because they had a relationship with Christ regardless of who was around them, right? But through their life of faithfulness, they were an example to others and they could lead them step by step closer to Christ. For your sakes, he says. He continues. And now notice, and you became followers of whom? Of us. And of the Lord. Having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy of the Holy Spirit. Now notice the point. Why did he do all this? Verse 7. So that you became, what? Examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. I was an example for you to get you rooted enough so that you could be an example for somebody else. Are you seeing that? To me, that's a very insightful, very powerful thought, a very significant thing. That we don't just preach the word. We sow the seed of the word, that's true. And we do all of this, but at the end of a campaign, we preach the word. Now what do you do with it? It has to be exemplified. It has to be modeled. It has to be integrated, applied in the life. In very tangible, practical ways. Very nuts and bolts. Very brass tacks. Help me out. Help me become like Jesus. Gospel Workers, page 322. Preaching is a small part of the work to be done for the salvation of souls. God's Spirit convicts sinners of the truth and he places in them in the arms of the church. The ministers may do their part, 
but they can never perform the work that the church should do. God requires his church to nurse those who are young in faith and experience, to go to them, not for the purpose of gossiping with them. (laughs) Don't just hang out and talk about worldly stuff. Come on, man. You didn't just get a buddy here. You're trying to make a disciple for Jesus Christ. Not for the purpose of gossiping with them, but to pray, to speak unto them words that are like apples of gold and pictures of silver. I honestly am not sure what that is, but it sounds like a very beautiful, luscious, beautiful thing, right? But they need personal care. They need to develop in their life the essential Christian habits that every Christian should already have. The ultimate goal of Christian faith is Christ-likeness. Not just an acceptance of Christ in theory, but the application of Christ in the life. That you become like Jesus. Thus again, Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. His goal is to get them to Jesus Christ. to Become more like him. There are essential spiritual habits every Christian must develop to be more like Jesus. Essential. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus explained it very clearly. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly, what's that word? Trained will be what? It doesn't say we'll believe the things his teacher taught, but he'll actually, if you're rightly trained, if you're perfectly trained, you'll actually become like the teacher himself. Again, our goal is not just to accept the theory of Christ, but become like Christ. That's the ultimate goal of Christianity. Christian education, page 122. Let no one suppose that conversion is the beginning and end of the Christian life. There is a science of Christianity that must be mastered. It's a study. It's a work. It's discipline. There is to be growth in grace. That that is constant progress and improvement. The mind is to be, oh, and she says it right. Does she say discipled? No. What does she say? The mind is to be disciplined. It's work. Trained. Educated. For the child of God is to do service for God in ways that are not natural or in harmony with inborn inclination. You know, when you come to Christ and you accept the message and you get baptized, that doesn't mean that your old habits are completely out of your life and there are no temptation, no allurement, no draw whatsoever. That you just automatically become Jesus-like. There are people that literally have that mystical expectation that when you come up out of the water, that it's just going to wash the old man completely away. It doesn't work like that. Paul said, I preached the message I left. Now you've got to keep working out that salvation. There's growth. It's a science. It's a discipline. It doesn't come naturally. It takes work. Eight essential habits every Christian must have. First of all, daily personal prayer. A prayer life does not come natural to someone who has never prayed before. That's the disciples would literally say things like, Lord, teach us to pray. That's a big thought. Prayer can be taught. We'll come back to that in a second. Okay, but daily personal study of the word of God must be a part of your Christian experience. Daily morning and evening family worship. 
That doesn't come natural to somebody. Think about what that involves. You have to look at your schedule. I have to actually make time. I might have to move some things. I might have to cancel some things. I might have to rearrange some stuff so that I can actually implement this. But my life as it was coming to Christ did not have Christ in it. And it's a finite amount of time and energy and money that constitutes my life. So if I'm going to put Christ not only in it, but in the center, if I'm going to reorganize everything in my life around him, we have to clear out the old stuff and I have to put him in first and then rearrange things around. That takes some thinking. You've got to schedule things for that. Weekly Sabbath school attendance. I'll just pause right here for a second. <laughs> I'm on a, on a committee for the Michigan Conference called the Training Center Church Committee. So it was pretty open and shut what I was going to talk about at this GYC. <laughs> but in, in putting these things together, what all the new members need to have in their lives, we realized that this would be a great guide for all the old members to go through too. I say that when I come to Sabbath school, and I'll leave that alone. But weekly Sabbath school attendance, I won't leave it alone. Go to your church. Count the people at Sabbath school, and count the people at church service. All right, that's all I'll say about it. Weekly church attendance. Why did Jesus go to church? A, it was what his father had asked him to do, sure, but what does the Bible record? As was his custom. He just grew up doing it. It was a habit. It's a thing he did. And when young people sometimes talk about, I, I would go to church, but, you know, like the elders are mean and the people look down at me. They, they don't talk, they don't, they don't like the way I dress. Well, A, you should probably change the way you dress. But B, so what? I mean, they, so what if, uh, first of all, I doubt most of the persecution they claim is actually legitimate. If I'm allowed to say that out loud. Okay. It might have a slice of it, but they blow it up to this. You know what I'm saying? But even if this were true, so what? When Jesus went to church, they tried to kill him. And you know what he did next Sabbath? He didn't say, well, you know what? I need to go to the woods and just have some alone time at the lake. No. He went to church. Why? Because it was his custom. Because it's Sabbath. That's what you do. It's what your custom is. Wouldn't it be great if new members developed a habit of just always coming to Sabbath school and church. That's just what you do. That takes work. It takes time. It takes repetition. Weekly prayer meeting, small group Bible study attendance, something in the middle of the week to keep you going with the believers. Boy, if you think we ought to talk about Sabbath school, we should really shift to talk about prayer meeting. Regular personal witnessing. Regular involvement in church ministries. You're going to be a part of the work of the church. Essential. So let's just, we're going to break these sections down. The rest of this thing is just breaking down those eight habits into ways that we can disciple people. Oops, I said it. Discipline people. <laughs> into becoming disciples of Christ. For instance, let's go back to that devotional life. The disciples of Jesus recognized a quality in his personal prayer life they lacked and greatly desired. Luke 11, verse 1, they happen upon Jesus when he's praying. And notice what the text says here. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. 
Now, this is a kind of a loaded thing, but apparently it was Jesus' habit to pray. Apparently he had a certain place where he prayed, and they, it didn't interrupt him. Apparently it was very clear that he was in the zone, if you will, and only when he stopped did they say, Lord, teach us to do that. Does this mean that these men did not pray? That they had never prayed before? That prayer was a newfangled idea to them? No. But they saw in his personal prayer life something they did not have in theirs. They said, whatever that is that you have, a sincerity, a depth, a significance, we need that. Teach us that. Christ's Optic Lessons, page 140. Christ's disciples were much impressed by his prayers and by his habits of communion with God. It wasn't that one particular prayer. It's apparently that he always prayed. And his consistency in that prayer life was impressive to them. It wasn't random. It wasn't spasmodic. It wasn't occasional. It was all the time. They said, well, how do you do that? One day, after a short absence from their Lord, they found him absorbed in supplication. The impression is he didn't even know they were standing there. Seeming unconscious of their presence, he continued praying, how? Aloud. What does Mrs. White say about prayer? It's like the opening of a heart to, the, to a friend. Do you think Christ had that quality of prayer when he talked to his father? It wasn't just in theory, it was for real. It was personal. And he literally talked out loud. They didn't have to ask him, Lord, what did you pray? They heard it. That was impressive to them. The hearts of the disciples were deeply moved. So personal prayer. And another part of the devotional life is daily Bible study, continued growth in the word. One issue facing the Seventh Adventist Church is the proclivity for a once-learned, always-learned mentality. Now, I'll say a few words about this. The, the Seventh Adventist Church uh, loudly, and I believe rightly, rejects once-saved, always-saved theology. Right? We understand that you don't just get your ticket in 1984 and you can live however you want the rest of the time. Right? It's not that. It's not a transaction. It's a continued growth. Always the daily, we understand that once saved, always saved is, is rejected. But somehow we subtly accept a once learned, always learned mentality when it comes to understanding the Bible and growing in the word of God. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. What does the apostle here recommend? He says, as newborn babes... Desire the pure milk of the word that you may, what? Grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. It's like once you have come into a relationship with Christ, you've tasted his goodness, his graciousness to you. Now you continue to grow by a steady diet of the word of God. Causes growth. Our High Calling, page 20, the food we eat at one meal does not satisfy us forever. We must daily partake of food. So we must daily eat the word of God that the life of the soul may be renewed. In those who feed constantly upon the word, Christ is formed the hope of glory. And neglect to read and study the Bible brings spiritual starvation. I think that people have this idea that once I come down the front and I accept Christ and I get baptized, that he now dwells in me and there's a permanent residence. No, 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 no. 
It's by continuing to feed on that word that he continues to live and grow in his principles in your life. Again, our high calling, page 215. No renewed heart can be kept in a condition of sweetness without the daily application of the salt of the word. Divine grace must be received daily or no man will stay converted. We want to talk about closing the back door? We need to get people in the word of God daily as a habit in their life. Christian lifestyle. Let's talk about some of the issues involved with that. When people come to the faith through this discipleship process, through this evangelism cycle, there's some radical changes. And if you grew up in the, for instance, I'll give you an example. I grew up in the church. I, I gave a little tiny snippet of my testimony a few years ago at GYC, but I'm the most Adventist person on the planet. My parents are Adventists. They, they, I was born in a Seventh-day Adventist hospital across the street from the Seventh-day Adventist church. I went to all the Seventh-day Adventist schools. I married a Seventh-day Adventist who, I went to work at the Seventh-day, oh, just, I'm, and I'm still here. <laughs> Which, I, we need more I'm still here testimonies, by the way. I mean, I think it's great that people get off of drugs and alcohol, but it would be great. It's like, I, I was clean and I'm still clean. That'd be great. But either way, I never had to give up smoking. I have no, I can look and be like, man, that must be hard. But I don't know what it's like for that smoke to be in my lungs. You know, I don't know what it's like to have the rush of nicotine. I don't have it. It's great but I don't have it. In fact, I never had to give up eating meat. I never started. (laughs) I mean, I've always gone to church. It's been my custom. Uh, It's just there's habits of Christian lifestyle, Seventh-day Adventism, that have just been incorporated in my life from the very beginning. Not everybody else has that. So the things that you think are normal are to them crazy. And let's think about this. For a great many Christian, for a great many Christian lifestyle practices, particularly those almost wholly unique to the Seventh-day Adventist church, are one thing in theory and another in practice. For instance, and we'll get that, well, we'll get to the instances. In this area of the discipleship process, the careful instruction and consistent example of a mentor is invaluable. All too often, the new members slip back into old habits under the pretense of prioritizing things as salvation issues or not. Okay, but we'll, we'll start with this one. For instance, let's take Sabbath keeping. Obviously, it's called the Seventh-day Adventist church. You go to church on Saturday. The jig is up that you keep the Sabbath. They've probably heard, if they've come to an evangelistic campaign, one powerful sermon on the Sabbath. They've been convinced that it's true, and they accept the message. But they don't know how to keep the Sabbath. They just know it's right to observe the Sabbath. But they haven't integrated that in life. How do you, think of the questions they might have. How do I stay faithful when I'm not hired because of my Sabbath observance? We have a man in our local church right now who is not yet baptized, who came to our last campaign, but he's so convicted on the Sabbath that he said, "I'm I'm not working on the Sabbath anymore, and now he has no job. He's being persecuted for a Sabbath observance, and he's not even a Seventh-day Adventist yet. I'm hoping to fix that in the next few weeks. <laughs> okay? But it takes, I mean, he's struggled with it. And his, his parents are so happy that he's walking with Christ. They love it, but they're not Seventh-day Adventists. And they're like, but this Sabbath thing, man, you've got you to gotta provide for yourself and your family. Surely the church will understand. 
I mean, you're not even a member. They're getting a lot of pressure. And I praise God that there are some godly men and women in our church who've surrounded this man and they come pick him up for church and they're helping him find a job and they're working with him and trying to take him home and mentor and model Sabbath keeping. But it's foreign. He sees the ideal, but he doesn't know what it looks like in the life. I know I'm not supposed to work or shop, but what do I do on Sabbath afternoon? Nap? We chuckle. But let me tell you something. If people came and watched a day of Sabbath keeping by Seventh-day Adventists, what would they think Sabbath is for? All right? All right, I know I go to Sabbath school. Well, I know that 20% go to Sabbath school. I know that most go to church. And I know I'm not supposed to go shopping and go out to eat and these kind of things. I get that. But what, I know what I don't. But tell me what I do. Again, I think this would be a great course for all the membership to take. How can I live in a house with a spouse who doesn't keep the Sabbath? Tell me how to answer that one. That's tough. It takes work. It takes discipline. Stewardship. Simple questions. Uh, Do I tithe my gross or my net income? It's all great in theory. Help me do it in practice. Where do the tithe dollars go anyway? How many of our members could answer that question with any sense of confidence or accuracy? Like, seriously, I mean, it seems we return our tithes to God. How do I fill out a check to God? I mean, they want to give, but they don't know the structure, they don't understand. Should I return tithe if the pastor or conference leadership becomes unfaithful? Is the tithe holy unto the conference or is it holy unto the Lord? But a lot of new Seventh-day Adventists are very zealous for the faith and when they see any hint of hypocrisy or dishonesty or some sort of, it's very disheartening. And you want me to be faithful to, no, I want you to be faithful to the Lord and I want you to be patient with people but it takes some time to talk this out. And it's not, you're not going to hit this in your 26 you know, night seminar. This takes that long-term discipline. Health. How do I cook without meat? I love this, I love this question. What do you people eat? <laughs> and I've always been flummoxed by this question. And I can say, well, what is it you eat? And they're like, well, I chicken and beef and fish and pork. I was like, you're at four. Well, then there's like seafood. Like, all right, that's five. You eat five things. Now let's make a list of all the fruits, vegetables, grains, and nuts in the world. That's what I eat. I eat like 100,000 things in different varieties. You eat chicken, right? (laughs) But to their minds, the only thing you eat are cows and chickens, right? And everything else are those other things that are on the decorative side. But we need them to switch the plate. In fact, eliminate that one off the plate altogether and fill it up with this one. How do I do that? Bunch of salad-eating, field-grazing hippies. What do you, how do you eat? You're not going to hit that in the 26-night seminar. You might touch on it in theory, but you're not going to make it in practice, you know? 
Is moderate and occasional alcohol use okay? I mean, I'm not a drunk, but I drink beer every once in a while. Must I give up caffeine? Aren't we more like open now? Good course for the membership to go through. Dress and adornment. What about my family heirloom jewelry? I mean, it's not, it's not for me, it's for my... By the way, have you noticed, you notice that nobody really wears any insignificant jewelry? <laughs> but this one was a gift, and this came from this, and this is for this, and this is for this purpose. And so the reason I have to have this... <laughs> that's hard. And a lot of times we say, well, you know, don't worry about the, don't worry about the caffeine thing. Don't worry about the jewelry. Don't, just, just, just come to church. Just, we kind of round off the edges and don't say that because it's work. It's discipline. It takes time. And it may not be quick and easy. It may not be like a sitcom where everything's resolved in 30 minutes. Got to spend time with these people. What about engagement and wedding rings? That's significant, right? How do you address that? Right here at GYC, they're asking those questions. Ooh. <laughs> and then everybody got real awkward. It's like, mm. <laughs> well, good. This is relevant. What about makeup and nail polish? I mean, how far do we go with this thing? What does modesty really look like? What is simplicity all about? What is economy and dress? You ever think that the end of an evangelistic campaign, someone's going to go to their closet? Be like, nope, <laughs> okay, not so much. It's practical. I mean, we can go on and on. Entertainment, relationships, on and on. The list can go on, but making the Christian life practical takes time, takes discipline. Let's go to church life. One of the most vital ministries in any local church is what? It's in your notes, please say that word back to me, <laughs> is what? Attendance. I stole this line from a good friend of mine, uh, Mark Howard or Jim Howard, one of the Howard brothers in the Michigan Conference. They have a, a great thing called the Ministry of Attendance. Boy, it's a great thought. Have you ever been to a church event and the room is like, you know, seats 200 people and 13 show up? Just sucks the life out of the place, sucks the air right out the doors. Now, they could have a powerful speaker, a great presentation, a wonderful DVD, I don't know whatever the thing is, a great concert, but when it's just crickets in the audience and nobody, kills it. You don't have to do anything, just old-fashioned show up to stuff. It's an encouragement for other people that apparently you value enough to show up. If you, can't do, if you don't hold any office, if you don't do anything else, just show up to stuff. Make that a habit. There is power in old-fashioned showing up to stuff that is hardly estimable. Look at Leviticus 23.3. When it talks about the Sabbath commandment, it doesn't just say it's a day of rest, right? Six days shall your work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy what? Convocation. What does convocation mean? Gathering, coming together. It's an old-fashioned weekly get-together. That if you don't get together, you haven't really convocated. Yes? It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. 
I love this other aspects of church life. We talk about Sabbath school. We talk about church. We talk about prayer meeting. Watch this one. Pastoral ministry, page 183. A prayer meeting will always tell the true interest of the church members in spiritual and eternal things. I was thinking about it just this morning as reviewing some of these ideas and highest attendance is gonna be church service, which is why, by the way, when we take attendance right before the sermon starts, that's your peak, that's your zenith attendance. Then comes Sabbath school. Then comes church business meeting. Then comes prayer meeting. And then comes outreach, right? 120 in church, 80 in Sabbath school. Let's see, church business meeting, 40. Prayer meeting, 20. Outreach, 10. And crickets, right? What would it be like if everything that your church did was of such significance and importance to the membership that they showed up just as much to that as they did to the church service itself? You don't have to have new speakers. You don't have to spend money. Just show up and you energize your church. Hebrews 10 speaks about this ministry of attendance. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Notice this is written specifically for those living at the time when Christ will come again. It says here, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And, so beyond just your personal holding fast to your faith, and what else? And let us consider whom? One another. All right, outside of your own personal relationship with Christ, you have a responsibility to someone else in the body of Christ, right? Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You get the image of somebody, like there's a, there's a when you have a, a pot of something cooking on the stove and it starts to settle and you have to stir it up to get it going again, you know? That's the picture he has in mind of the church. You, with your daily devotion, your daily faithfulness, your commitment to Christ, now think about other people and stir them up to love and good works. Apparently, love and good works are inherent in the other people, but they need to be stirred up by your influence. Let us stir one another up. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The closer and closer we get to the coming of Christ, the closer and closer we should be coming to each other to stir each other up for love and good works, to finish the work. There's a ministry of attendance. In addition to active participation in the local church, new converts also need to be taught the prophetic significance of our denominational history. You don't get a lot of Adventist history in the 26th night campaign. They don't know who John Lopper or Joseph Bates or even James White or any, they probably heard of Ellen White because they better have had a message on that. If not, boy, you're up a creek. But they don't know. They don't know. 
The Bible encourages in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 12, remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. Do you notice that? Remember his works, the stuff that occurred, the events, right? And the judgments of his mouth. The events and the teachings. Thus it's a little surprise, last day events, page 72. As I see what the Lord has wrought, I am filled with astonishment and with confidence as Christ as leader. We have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. The events and the teachings. By the way, we keep saying we, we love this particular passage from this pen of inspiration where she opens with, we have nothing to fear. And people say, good, we have nothing to fear. Is that the point of the passage to say that there's nothing to fear? No, the point of the passage is to say there indeed is something to fear. Which is what? That you forget. <laughs> nothing to fear except this. By the way, forgetting something implies that you knew it in the first place. We've got to teach them. They don't know. Denominational structure, both local and global, is a safeguard for new believers. I don't think that we appreciate how radically wonderful the structure of the Seventh Adventist Church is. Let's take one small example. We are not congregational churches. I am not paid by the local congregation directly. That way, I do not have to please their itching ears. Right? Nor do I have the temptation to round off difficult edges because I might get a raise. Hmm. My job is not to be popular with the locals. My job is to be faithful to the message and to give them what they need, not necessarily what they want. No. That's unique. Information breeds confidence. Knowing where the tide dollars go and how they're spent, for example, helps you in your faithfulness. It gives you an object in mind, like, oh, I get that. Now, we should be faithful to God even if we don't get it, but getting it helps. And a thorough understanding of church order allows for healthy, thoughtful participation. What is a church business meeting? Who's allowed to go? Am I on the board? Are we all, are we all deacons here? What is this? They don't know. Acts of the Apostles, page 185. As an important factor in the spiritual growth of the new converts, the apostles were careful to surround them with the safeguards of gospel order. Isn't that fascinating? Give them a church manual. Churches were duly organized in all places where there were believers. Officers were appointed in each church, and proper order and system were established for the conduct of all the affairs pertaining to the spiritual welfare of the believers. Organization and structure can help mold them into Christ-likeness. Again, later in the same book, page 246, the council which decided this case was composed, and this is in reference to Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council and the debate about circumcision. The council which decided this case was composed of apostles and teachers who had been prominent in raising up the Jewish and Gentile Christian churches with chosen delegates from various places. Elders from Jerusalem and deputies from Antioch were present and the most influential churches were represented. This is a general conference session. The entire body of Christians was not called to vote upon the question. This is not a democracy, the Seventh Adventist Church. It's a representative government. 
We elect leaders. We pray for the Holy Spirit's leading in choosing and selecting those leaders. And we pray for them to go represent the truth and the interests of the local area correctly, accurately. The apostles and elders, men of influence and judgment, framed and issued the decree which was thereupon generally accepted by the Christian churches. Not all, however, were pleased with the decision. This, believe it or not, was not written in 2014 or 15. But do you see any practical application to the Seventh Adventist Church global structure today? Have mercy. Not all, however, were pleased with the decision. There was a faction of ambitious and self-confident brethren who disagreed with it. These men assumed to engage in the work of their own responsibility. They indulged in much murmuring and fault-finding, proposing new plans and seeking to pull down the work of the men whom God had ordained to teach the gospel message. From the first, the church has had such obstacles meet and ever will till the close of time. At all levels, the Seventh Adventist Church needs informed, committed lay members to participate in church governance. You need to start them small. Start them with, invite them to a church board meeting. Just see how it works. Let them know church business meeting is for you. Educate them on what the issues are. How does the budget work here? Where does the money go? What are our objectives? What are our aims? You know, these kind of things. Then inform them about the conference. And at some point, if they're faithful, they'll continue to hold office. They'll get perhaps uh, put in office on in, in, in the conference level. Lay advisory or on the executive committee or something like that. Then they could go up and help out the, the union. You know, it, 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 all, uh, very well possible that someone from your church, the person that you led to Christ, could someday be a delegate at the general conference session. You can help them understand how God's remnant church operates and let them be effective workers for his cause. Continuing on. A systematic discipleship program is necessary not merely to keep new members in the faith, but to develop them into active workers for the cause of Christ. Again, Christian Service, page 58. It is evident that all the sermons that have been preached have not developed a large class of self-denying workers. This subject is to be considered as involving the most serious results. The churches are withering up because they have failed to use their talents in diffusing light. Careful instruction should be given, which will be as lessons from the master, that all may put their light to practical use. What do we teach new members is their responsibility when they come to Christ? When they join the Seventh Adventist Church, is there any thorough instruction about what to do with your influence for the Lord now? Or do they just pick up by example that my job is to attend and sit and eat veggie meat and sleep? Right? They have to be trained for service. Now, the good thing is, we've mentioned this in another seminar, the new members, nine times out of ten, have far more zeal for the message than the established members do. What they need to do is not be told to go. They need to be trained how to go, right? Because whether you tell them or not, they're not going to shut up, which is really awesome. But they've got all this energy. It's like, uh, it's like buckshot, right? There's a little piece here, a little piece there, and it's scattered. It didn't have a real point like a bullet, right? But it's going to go out there. So we need to help not contain it, but to guide it to be the most effective it can be, right? But oftentimes they say, hey, hey, shh, don't tell people about the mark of the beast. In fact, don't tell people any 
No, 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 that's not the right answer. Teach them how, what's the first thing? What are the opening salvos? Guide them, instruct them into being effective witnesses. God expects, this is Christian Service 58 still, God expects his church to discipline and fit its members for the work of enlightening the world. An education should be given that would result in furnishing hundreds who would put out to the exchangers valuable talents. In Evangelism 354, personal responsibility, personal, active, uh, personal activity in seeking the salvation of others must be the education given to all newly come to the faith. Must be part of their experience. And again, along with a review of the prophetic rise of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, there must be clearly seen not only a corporate but a personal call to missionary service for God in these last days of earth's history. They not only need to go win people for Christ in a general sense, but they have a presage message of present truth to share with the world. And they need to understand that in Revelation 10, where it says you must prophesy again, it means you as an individual, not just the church collective. When Revelation 14, 6, and 7 talks about another angel flying in the midst of, of, God, uh, of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach, who says it in a loud voice, that's you, you're that voice. Review and Herald, August 24, 1886. Wherever a church is raised up, the minister should not consider his duty done until it is thoroughly organized and placed in working order. Every member should become a what? Missionary. All should be giving something to do to help spread the light of truth, for this very activity will cause them to grow in spirituality. It will cause growth in spirituality to exercise that which you have received. It is this kind of discipline, she continues, that has been sadly neglected in many of our churches. The time and labor of our ministers have not been spent in the manner best calculated to keep the churches in a healthy, growing condition. If less time had been spent in what? Sermonizing and far more in educating the people to work intelligently, there would now be many more to enter the broad field as missionaries and much more talent to be put to use in the various branches of the work. I think it'd be a really fun thing to do is just survey your general church membership and ask them what is the job of the pastor? And how high up on the list would be preaching sermons every Sabbath be? But you go through, I mean, it's, her statements on this are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Stop preaching so much. Too much preaching. And I don't think she means stop spreading the gospel. No. Or stop preaching to unbelievers. But don't just hover over the church just preaching and regurgitating over and over and over. Make it practical now. Put it to use. Teach. Every church member though active in the local church's cycle of evangelism, should also be continually working the field of influence the Lord has entrusted to them individually. This cycle of evangelism is not just corporate. You know, it's not just collectively we do soil preparation events like big campaigns for health outreach or something like that. And it's not just corporately that we go out and have big outreach days, but in your daily life, you're looking to develop in the relationships that you have with people that cycle of evangelism for them individually. How can I prepare that soil? 
what is the best seed and the best way to be sown in that person's life, individually? How can I help cultivate them by ongoing Bible studies? Not just we have a Bible study program to which I will defer you, but how can I engage in cultivating the word of God in your heart? And even in harvest, don't think, man, I can't wait till the evangelist comes six months from now because this person needs to make a decision. If you know they need to make a decision, you make the appeal right then and there in their home. I can see you're, you're struggling with this. We've been, we've been talking about this for weeks, months. Do you want to just make that commitment? Let's pray together tonight that God will make right then and there. And then present, by the way, pastor, this one's ready for baptism. I'm not saying climb in the tank and do the baptism yourself. Slow down. But I'm saying that work of cultivation that brings them there, that's an individual responsibility of every church member. Soil preparation, mingling with the people and ministering to their needs. Seed sowing, actively seeking to share Bible truth and ascertaining others' interest in spiritual things. By the way, our next, our last one, number six, we're going to talk about these points in the cycle as an individual, in a message entitled, May I Have Your Attention, Please? How do we get them interested? How do we ascertain if they are interested? We'll come to that. Cultivation, taking up the long work, but long but rewarding work of giving Bible studies, uh, that's to say studies, or studying the Bible with seekers of truth. Calling for decisions from those whom Christ, with whom Christ and his truth have been shared. And finally, preservation is mentoring new members to be genuine disciples of Jesus who seek others for him. The Training Center Church Committee, of which I'm part, had our aim, our goal, objective, was to have the thing that we've been working on for the last about year and a half ready to show you and reveal at GYC. And it'll probably be done about February. We were this close. But let me tell you about some exciting things coming out soon, okay? We've been right, all the things that we went through here is just a very brief table of contents for a discipleship handbook that we're producing in the Michigan Conference. It's a 26 week long, weekly meeting curriculum so that after someone gets baptized, after they are a new believer, after they come to the church, what do we do then? You discipline them, you mentor them, you personally walk them through the application of those principles in their lives. And each week you'll have a lesson on, okay, this week we're going to talk about personal prayer life, daily devotions. We provide a Bible study reading plan in there. And if you, I'll just tell you what it is right now. You can cut to the chase and get one for yourself. It's a little book called Correlated Bible Readings. Anybody seen that book? Oh, then you're going to love it when we put it in the new book. <laughs> okay. But it basically just goes, takes the, the Bible and then the Conflict of the Ages series, weaves them together, and you can decide, do you want to do it 10 minutes a day? 30 minutes a day or an hour a day, and it depends. You'll get through the whole Bible in either one year, two years, or four years. But daily, and it brings out for you, read this paragraph, read this, and it walks them through, and they get in a habit of daily Bible study. And it goes through all the areas that we've covered here. Each week has a meeting on this, each week has a meeting on this, so that six months after they're baptized, they're not only still there, but they're stronger than ever, and they're growing. And by that time, they're already starting to prepare the soil for somebody else so that they become examples to others. Have what we said make sense today? All right, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that you give us 
not only the responsibility, but the great privilege of working for and with you in seeking the lost. The Lord, teach us how to do so effectively. Help us to do it thoroughly and not half-heartedly. Lord, let each one of us develop those spiritual habits in our life that are essential for every Christian. And through us, Lord, may we lead others to Jesus as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.